I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Renaud DeRizen. Renaud is known in the global security community as the father of Ness's vulnerability scanner. His original creation, Nessus, celebrated its 15th anniversary in 2013 and is considered the de facto standard for vulnerability scanning worldwide. Renault co-founded Tenable Security in 2002. As chief technology officer, he drives product strategy and development. Before Tenable, Renault was a primary author of Nessus Vulnerability Scanner, releasing the first version of Nessus when he was only 17. Renault continues to contribute to the global security community. He is the author of three patents related to network scanning and security and has published his work in books and magazine. In this episode, we discuss building the first version of Nessus when he was a teenager, getting the basics right, challenges with the cloud, IoT and embedded device security, responsible vulnerability disclosure, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Renaud, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Hey, Doug. How are you? Doing very well. Um, so are, are, I'm guessing you are now, as we speak, down in uh, Atlanta getting ready for your guys' big conference this week. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you arrived yesterday. We kicked off the event this morning with a couple of keynotes. And we're very excited to have so many customers uh, coming to Atlanta to talk about our products. Yeah, and if uh, you know, if you can kind of give a little background, I mean, you've, you've obviously been with the company many, many years, having started it and seen a pretty impressive growth. I mean, you guys are taking in funding rounds, and from from talking to, like I said, some of the folks that we before we even hit record, you know, I've met Ron and folks over the years that have been in those early stages. It's it's been quite an exciting uh, journey for you guys. But how did it all really kind of get started? How did what was the idea that brought you guys in to say we're going to fix that problem? You know, it's kind of funny. I mean. The story of Tenable starts before Tenable. Um, it starts when I was 17 and I wrote a piece of software called Nessus. Um, I was in high school at the time. I was looking for a coding project uh, which would involve Unix system administration, network programming, and, uh, and, uh, and UI work, basically. And I decided that I would write a, a um, I was familiar with Satan, which was a VNFT scanner, which was not maintained. And I thought, hey, maybe I can write that from scratch and see where that goes. And I posted about it on the bug track mailing list, which at the time was the hub of all things cybersecurity, which was called InfoSec at the time. Um, And the response I got from users was phenomenal. And they kept asking me about new features and when I would release a check for a, a given vulnerability, which was just published, et cetera. And it kept me going. And as that user base grew and as the demand grew, um, you know, having a purely free model was not sustainable. And I met Ron and Jack, who are my two co-founders at Tenable. And Ron came out of um, Antaresis, where he did the Dragon IDS. And and I knew him uh, from his uh, Dragon days, and, and we had chatted a bit. And he said, hey, you know, we're... Jack and I, we would like to create a company which 
take vulnerability management at the enterprise level. And it's exactly what I was working on on my side uh, to, to, next, to take Nessus to the next level as well. And we kind of shared notes and we were very aligned and we hit it off and we created Tenable this way. And, and we did it because we felt like, we've always felt like true security really starts with a basic blocking and tackling of maintaining every system in the, in the network. And, and we felt like VM is basically, it's a ground truth on what the network looks like and how, um, how safe it is or how good its hygiene is. And, you know, that, that was a little contrarian at the time because we, it was at the time where the industry was always offering a silver bullet to solve all ailments really getting to security. It's firewalls and then IPSs and all that. Uh, but we kept going, and and uh, and these days it's it's fully recognized that vulnerability management is is a fundamental principle to maintain a secure network. Yeah, it's you know think uh, all these years later we're we're still dealing with the same problem, and it's I think it's tough for people to understand it's not a problem that goes away. Um, you know the way that I try to impart the the use of a tool like a vulnerability scanner, particularly Nessus, in my client environments, they'll say, well you know, is, is this it? I'm like, well, no, this is kind of, this is the, the compass that us as captains of the ship are going to have to use to navigate. It's not telling us what we should or should not do. It's just fact finding. Um, but it still seems to be this issue with some of the basics in organizations um, are, are still, still need to get ironed out. And where do you see that? Did you see that getting better? And how can we get people to say, you know, just get the basics right. And then we'll worry about all the downstream stuff. Yeah, so I, I think so. It's it's twofold. I think it's getting better because organizations really realize that after they invested in all their security tools, they realize they have to do the hard work of maintaining the systems. Now, what has happened over the last few years is that if you look at vulnerability management of the, you know, twenty years ago, really you were scanning your DMZ at the time, which was two hosts and maybe you know, one web server, and, and, and maybe you had two mail servers, which were configured the same, but not exactly the same. Uh, and you would scan them, and you would find maybe 50 issues, maybe just 15. You would fix them and call it a day. Today, our customers scan the entire environment, and you know whether it's a desktop server, et cetera, and they find themselves with half a million findings. So the question is not so much how do we gather data, it's, it's how do we make it actionable? And and so, actionable. What what one thing we've been doing to to help there and and to to really make VM more efficient is is that we've injected a healthy dose of pragmatism in the process where we basically look at the vulnerability, we look at its score, but we also temper the score by saying, well, um, you know, this is a CVSS of ten. It's critical, but at the same time. There's no non-exploit about this, this vulnerability. That software never saw any exploit ever, so it's probably very hard to exploit. Nobody's talking about it on, on, social, on social media and on the dark web. So therefore, maybe this vulnerability is not the most urgent thing you need to fix right now. And by bringing this level of pragmatism, we actually enable the teams to go a much longer way, right? Because if, if they just take a half a million volts and throw it over to IT and say, go fix this, then, then they won't get. Then they won't get on anything. They won't uh, uh, um, go anywhere. But by being pragmatic and by helping teams to basically 
fix what really matters, uh, we, we really think we can help them. Yeah, it's it's really, it's kind of neat to see the insight. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's a trust but verify model that's in security. And that's even when you talk to folks about say, well, what's in your environment? And then you run a scan and they say, well, you know, geez, that, that server should have been taken down, you know, months ago. We had a change control for that and it shouldn't be there. And I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I, I can't help the fact that it's still there or that this patch didn't apply and you insisted that you did patching. And it's like, you, you have to kind of go through and, and getting people to realize that um, the computers are fallible in that sense and that you need to build in part of that vulnerability management. Um, my fear now is that as people migrate things to the cloud, they feel that's somebody else's problem. Like that, you know, the same problem, these are just, you know, all those problems go away. How are you seeing the cloud change things and what are some of the newer challenges that we're going to have to address when looking at, you know, cloud infrastructure security? Well, I I think your point about um, systems basically lingering along is is very well taken. It's it's one of the issue. I think, I mean, cloud is a lot of opportunity it's a giant leap in terms of um, how basically the digital infrastructure is being managed. Uh, but it also creates a, a healthy dose of or unhealthy dose of complexity, right? I mean, basically, if you look at your typical AWS, you can deploy instances, you can deploy databases, you can deploy, you can store files on S3. I mean, you've got all these services which did not exist years ago. And really, you know, the, the design of a modern cloud app is a lot of little components all talking together, which and, and they can grow or reduce based on, on usage, right? Um, so in my experience, complexity breeds insecurity. You know, one of the big uh, movements which goes hand in hand with the cloudification of the world is DevOps, right? And, and DevOps is a set of tools, it's a set of principles, and it's a set of, of, of design uh, of, uh, of, um, of design which all create that kind of high velocity development model. And one of the key uh, tenets of DevOps, for instance, is that whole concept of microservices, right? So basically, instead of having one application with a front end and a big back end and, and, uh, um, and a middleware, you end up having tons of little servers doing one thing really well, and you have like a team maintaining each of these, right? So a good example is, let's say, for instance, that Facebook was based on, on, on that methodology. Well, you would have one server dedicated to updating your profile picture on Facebook. And is that creates complexity because on one hand, that means now you're dealing with hundreds of services or, or thousands depending on, on the app. Actually, Netflix published some of uh, um, documentation about how they do DevOps and, and they showed the interactions between all their microservices and it's, it's chaos, right? It's very difficult to follow and over time, that means you're going to inevitably run into issues where a given service basically is ingesting data. It has it had assumed that another service would have scrubbed it, um, and you know there's a new pass to get there, and suddenly, boom, you've got some kind of weird SQL injection or cross-site scripting or something. So, so, so that model creates complexity, and that's where insecurity can 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 happen, right? Now, the flip side of that is that if you do it well you reduce the impact of vulnerability, right? So to follow up on my Facebook example, 
if somebody can hack into that server changing a profile picture, maybe the worst they can do is change profile pictures. They don't get access to data. They don't access to private messages. They can't change your name and they can't access to your, your login. So it's it's. It's it's never you know it's neither good or bad but yeah it, it's way more moving moving parts and it, it makes the auditing of the whole solution much harder because now you have to look at the source code and you have to understand how all these little servers interact with each other so if you if you look at so solutions like static code analysis um, they kind of get confused because they all see they see fifty little things doing secret things, but really the insecurity will come with how they interact from, from uh, between each other. De definitely. And the one thing that, you know, we certainly see that becomes another kind of layer of abstraction that was always present in on-prem, but now kind of gets baked in is identity and access management um, mm -hmm. becomes something else that needs to get kind of checked. And, and how do you see, you know, like products that you're working with now, kind of be able to add those features or integrate that into a, you know, audit check or vulnerability scans? Yeah, it's definitely the kind of thing we're looking at. We're thinking at, at ways um, to do to do a, a better job there. And, and you know, it's funny because again, you look at AWS and the concept of IAMs over there, and it's it's really powerful. But then you can have a user with no privileges creating an instance which has privileges. So so you've got a whole new concept of privilege escalation and thing like that. So it's. Uh, yeah, we're it's an area of research. Let's put it this way. And with you know, with that too, is also some of the API stuff. Um, it seems like that can also help you scale on on your security and, and DevOps and, and security ops. So while the things that can cause problems, there's also seems to be, if I'm reading this right, that there's the solutions can be built in around that as well. For API security. Or just security in general that, you know, with API security and just APIs in general, that your ability to plug into a lot of different uh, lateral areas into an environment, um, while that can also be, that can be the problem in some instances, can also allow you to build security and DevOps around that. Yeah, it's, it's well, that's a good thing with, so one of the good things with DevOps to, to uh, as we own it, own it on that, is everything is API driven. Uh, and usually DevOps, completely does away with the concept of not even here syndrome, meaning that organizations which embrace DevOps fully really realize that they're not in the business of, let's say, um, doing, uh, uh, I don't know, log management for the system. So they, they plug in things like Datadog into the solution, and, and they use a lot of off-the-shelf components around it. So it is all API-driven, which is really good. And if it's done well, yeah, you know, you you probably want to use a third party authentication mechanism rather than your then cobble up your own because that third party, if it's a company which is dedicated to that, it might be more secure. So, so is there some? Um, there's a lot of potential benefit from that from a security point of view, and uh, um, and it's and we're moving to towards a world of Legos, right? Where instead of writing everything from scratch, it's more about how you connect them together, and if if it's done right, it, it will it will increase overall security. And just curious, are, are you guys starting to look at too at you know those other type of fringe things, you know whether it be IoT, 
SCADA controllers, um, you know, I've done some work with unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, that there's these new things that are coming out that mm-hmm. uh, are not your traditional embedded operating system running on top of an Intel chipset. There's these new things um, that seem to be coming out like crazy, uh, more so than we can even figure out where the vulnerabilities lie. Yeah, so so it's it's a it's a giant area of focus for us. Um, so we've got a solution called industrial security, uh, which is basically vulnerability management for um, OT solutions, and 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 um, uh, we identify devices, identify missing missing updates, things like that. What makes it different is also we're talking about very different kind of cadence. It's devices which are here to stay for twenty five years. Uh, there's no way they get patched every every month, uh, so it's more about understanding what's out there and working on compensatory controls to limit access to them or things like that, and then patch them once a year during the annual cleanup of the plant, things like that. Um, on the IoT front, you know, IoT is interesting because it's it's a mixed bag of, of a lot of things. One particular area of IoT that we look at is, is what we call um, home IoT finding its way in the enterprise. So think of Samsung, T- Samsung TV used as a conference, as a as a as a, uh, a conference room kind of projection system, but it's also running Android and it's it has a microphone and and uh, and so so it's it's also popping up everywhere. And there's a lot of demand to kind of provide security there. And we did a lot of research also in, in more traditional enterprise IoT devices like um, King System for offices. We, we, we found a we published last year, as your day, in a, um, in, a, in a counting system where if you could touch it network-wise, you could create, you could create as many counts as you want and basically open any door in a building, thing like that. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very different uh, it, it's a new world, and it shows because you know the thing with IoT is that uh, a lot of IT principles are carried over for no reason. And, and I'll give you an example. Every time you turn on a Sony TV or my Sony TV, at least, it tells you, "Hey, do you want to watch TV, or do you want to watch a progress bar on how we're applying a security update instead?" and you know, why doesn't that TV self-update? Why do we carry over IT principle of asking the user to deploy an update if it's the right time, et cetera, instead of being more proactive? I mean, a computer is difficult to predict if it's the right time or not to forcefully deploy an update because it, by definition, it's a general purpose. A TV has a single purpose, to display an image. So it's actually much easier to be forceful and say, hey, and, and, and have some logic looking at, I don't know, using some basic machine learning, saying, hey, you know what, the user has never watched TV at 2 a.m., maybe it's a good time to, update, to do the update. And, and so what we're seeing today with a lot of IoT devices is that they make the owner of these devices the sysadmin of, of basically of the house. And, uh, and it's not sustainable. So I really think that whole field is going to evolve rapidly because you know, I do have a few. I, you know, I, I see it firsthand, right? I do have a few devices at my at my home, and and uh, I'm kind of fed up to ask or deny to do or do, to authorize or deny some updates in, on each of them. So it will get better, but right now it's very uh, antiquated. Yes, definitely, and it is funny just to touch on a little bit that how often when you run vulnerability scans in production environments, like what 
are all these Apple TVs? And people are like, oh, yeah, we, we just plugged them in quickly for something in a conference room because we're having a board meeting and somebody forgets about it. And it's still mm-hmm. online, uh, you know, weeks or months later. Uh, but you also talked about a little bit at the, uh, you know, discovering zero days. And I know you guys recently found something with Slack. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I always find interesting is you know, what's a good process for responsible vulnerability disclosure? Because we're, we're forced with the idea of, you know, we're going to have to kind of tell people these things are out there, but how do we do it in a, in a way that actually betters the product or service and doesn't create more problems? Yeah. So, 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 so yeah, you mentioned it. We have a, we have a zero day research team at Tenable. We've got full-time engineers focusing on finding issues in software that we find interesting. And, and, and we select the software based on, on the number of factors. It's more art than science. Uh, and, uh, and as you mentioned, we found issues in Slack, in Zoom, in, in, in fairly high-profile software, but also in, in some IoT devices you've never heard of and still are OEM'd everywhere. And so the process we use at Tunnel is we use basically the basic responsible disclosure kind of process where we, we notify the vendor and we give them 90 days to fix their uh, software or to provide an update. They can ask for a little, a little extension, which I think is 10 days. Um, and then after that, we release. And we feel like the reason why we do it this way is that A, just because we find the vulnerability doesn't mean that nobody else found it first. And it doesn't mean that you don't have somebody or some actor somewhere exploiting it. So we feel like you have to strike the balance between giving the vendor, a, a of course, a chance to, to fix it, but also ultimately you have to apply some healthy pressure there. Uh, and, and second of all, the way we, we also do it, we, we actually, our goal is to help vendors also have better processes at dealing with security. And, and I'll give you an example. We, we disclosed, uh, as I mentioned, we disclosed last year a zero-day vulnerability in a, uh, in a card reader system. And we talked to the vendor, and the person we talked to basically said, no, we're not going to fix it. And, and that's where basically, and so... We decided to go forward, and we published we published uh, um, our advisory. And, and and first of all, the good thing, having done Tenable for 15 years and having gone from a, a scrappy company of three of where we are today, uh, we got enough momentum in the market that we released this advisory, the press picked, picked it up, and com- customers of this vendor basically reach out to the vendor saying, what do you mean you won't fix it? We use it everywhere, and we need you to fix it. But the interesting thing is that we did a follow-up with that vendor, and eventually they did release a patch, and they do have pretty good security practices in place. What was not working was their whole disclosure process on their end. And so by kind of applying that kind of pressure, we, um, we kind of help them to straighten out this process. And now if you email them, they do have a, an actual security response team. And and, and uh, next time somebody finds an issue, it will be a much, much uh, smoother ride. So for things like that, we believe that overall, it's short-term pain for long-term gain from, for, for that particular vendor. And, and we see it as a good thing. Now, if it was a more potent zero day, which affected millions of users, if it was a warmable zone, you know, I think we would we would, we would still communicate about it. Maybe we would give less details. Um, but yeah, we believe it's important. And, and you know, fortunately, 
more often than not, most vendors have a good uh, vitamin answer process in place. And, and 90 days is plenty of time for them to get their act together, escalate the issue to the right engineer, and, uh, and come up with an action plan. So, so we feel very good about, about the, the work that the team is doing and the process we're following. That's awesome. So um, we're, tell, tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening uh, at the conference this week. Anything exciting and new coming out? Yeah. So, so, you know, so first of all, the very good thing about our user conference is that it really is heartwarming to, to see so many customers making the trip here and dedicating time to share among themselves uh, how they use the product and share, of course, share with us and also come to listen about what's coming up. Uh, and we talked about a few things. We talked about uh, our work with vulnerability prioritization, where, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, we, we really try to bring that kind of um, uh, healthy uh, pragmatism to, to the whole vulnerability management process and, and kind of help prioritize what needs to be fixed first. And then we demoed our product Lumen, which uh, really takes vulnerability management to the next level. And it's all about uh, better communicating with non-security experts, which is something that we believe on the street really needs, uh, and which is about turning technical data, which is scan results, into business insights. So it's about taking raw scans data, the scan data, and, and turn them into KPIs, benchmarking, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so far, the feedback has been phenomenal, and we're very happy about it. And, uh, um, and over the next few days, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really looking forward to engage with more customers. Very cool. And, and where can people find you online? Um, on Twitter, LinkedIn? Uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a very social media person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm stuck in the 90s. Um, and, and so I'm, yeah, I'm not on Twitter, uh, but yeah, LinkedIn easily. And I, I check it every now and then. So feel free to reach me this way. Great. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today and, uh, we'll look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today on cybersecurity interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.